Every day, the California dream is, is dimmed by the wrenching reality of families, children, and seniors living unfed on a concrete bed. As Californians, we, we pride ourselves on our unwavering sense of compassion and justice for humankind. Do we? But there's nothing compassionate about allowing fellow Californians to live on the streets, huddled in cars or makeshift encampments. Thank you, Governor Newsom. Appreciate those words. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. You know it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Amongst other fine affiliates, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. We will get to California Governor Gavin Newsom in a bit uh, to discuss what he was talking about there at the top of the show, uh, but specifically to discuss both his upcoming recall election for some reason uh, and the state's shameful homelessness crisis. But uh, we have got a bit of breaking news just before air today that will will suffice as at least some encouraging news of a sort for the moment anyway. Israel's government agreed to a bilateral ceasefire with Hamas on Thursday to halt Nearly two weeks of fighting that has left hundreds dead and parts of the impoverished Gaza Strip reduced to rubble. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's security cabinet agreed, quote, to accept the Egyptian initiative for a bilateral ceasefire, which will take effect at a later date. The government said in a statement unclear at this hour what that later date Will exactly be, though Hamas has said that they would begin the ceasefire on Friday at 2 2 a.m. 
local time. The truce comes after international diplomatic efforts and growing pressure from Israel's closest ally, that would be the United States, to bring an end to the most intense conflict between Israel and Hamas since the 2014 war in Gaza. It comes after more than 10 days of aerial attacks killed at least 230 Palestinians, a number which includes at least 65 Palestinian children, children in Gaza. In Israel, uh, 12 were killed, including two children, according to officials on both sides. Nearly 2,000 people were injured and tens of thousands were displaced in the densely populated enclave of Gaza, home to some 2 million Palestinians. The Israeli military says it has targeted Hamas fighters as well as tunnels and weapons used by the group. But civilians in Gaza have paid a very heavy toll. As NBC notes, the latest outbreak of fighting has overwhelmed Gaza's fragile health system, already strained by the coronavirus pandemic and plunged its residents into further hardship with clean water, electricity and fuel now said to be in very short supply. Hundreds of buildings, hundreds, including homes, hospitals, again, amid a pandemic, uh, and schools have been damaged or destroyed, according to U.N. officials on the ground in Israel. Hamas rocket fire left residents from the border city of Ashkelon to bustling Tel Aviv scrambling for safety over the past two weeks. Beleaguered hard-right Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to press on with the offensive earlier this week as Israel appeared determined to inflict maximum damage on Hamas, which governs Gaza and is labeled a terror group by both Israel and the U.S., According to uh, NBC, that despite Joe Bi- President Joe Biden's joining calls for an end to the hostilities, Biden had previously avoided pushing Israel, at least publicly, but criticism, much of it from within his own Democratic Party this week, had been building for him to intervene more forcefully. The U.S., after all, gives Israel $3.8 billion a year in military aid that is equivalent to 20 percent of Israel's defense budget and amounts to nearly three-fifths of U.S. foreign military financing globally. Some Democrats in Congress are currently attempting to prevent the sale of $750 million in new weaponry to Israel. The current crisis began after weeks of tensions in Jerusalem during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Clashes between Israel police, Palestinian worshippers, and nationalist Israelis as well as plans to evict Palestinian families from land claimed by Jewish settlers in, uh, in uh, East Jerusalem, uh, led to days of violence in and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque this month. That is the third holiest site in Islam. In response, Hamas began launching rockets at Israel as the group vowed to make the country pay a heavy price for its treatment at that holy site. And Israel responded with airstrikes on Gaza, with ground forces later joining in the bombardment as the conflict escalated and stoked fears, death and the broad humanitarian disaster, which we can only hope will now somehow be mitigated by this ceasefire if it holds uh, in the coastal enclave, which has been under a 14 year economic blockade 
by Israel and Egypt since Hamas came to power in 2007. Yossi Meckelberg, a professor and senior Middle East research fellow at the uh, Chatham House, a think tank, said the ceasefire will remain, quote, fragile so long as it does not address the underlying tensions between Israel and the Palestinians. At the end of the day, he said Hamas and Netanyahu justify the existence of each other. Their existence is based on confrontation, not on cooperation. Although a ceasefire will go some way to curbing the violence, he said he was wary of repeat flare-ups in the future, adding, I do not see peace around the corner. Meanwhile, back home in our own Knesset, the disgraceful situation following the MAGA mob insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, that continues to fester after the Democratic chair and ranking Republican member of the Homeland Security Committee in the House had agreed uh, to a 9-11 style commission uh, format for this independent commission that would look into the Trump incited attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Though Republican ranking member John Katko had been given the OK to negotiate on behalf of Republicans in the Homeland Security Committee and pretty much got what Republicans had said that they wanted. They wanted an evenly balanced, evenly partisan balanced uh, commi commission. And Democrats got what they had wanted, a commission that was focused on the January 6th attack as opposed to a broader commission that would also look at violence last year during protests against racism and police violence. Both GOP minority leaders uh, in the House and Senate, however, after that deal had been struck between Republicans and Democrats, both of the minority leaders in the House and Senate decided to oppose the deal and whip their members in opposition to it because the Republican leadership was, once again, not dealing in good faith. That, even though Congressman Katko himself appears to have been doing so. And also because House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy does not want to be called to testify in front of this commission about the phone call that he had during the uprising with Donald Trump, who, by the way, you'll be shocked to learn, Desi Doyen, Donald Trump also opposes the commission. What a shock. Because, you know, of course he does. He was responsible for the entire mess, resulting in the worst attack on Congress and democracy itself in well over 100 years. Nonetheless, as TPM's Kate Riga reports, a minor, very minor Republican jailbreak occurred Wednesday afternoon and catapulted the January 6th commission bill in the House to a landslide passage, at least in the House, delivering an embarrassing blow to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. In all, 35 House Republicans joined all of the Democrats after McCarthy had announced his opposition to the bill on Tuesday. The vote came after an emotional and at times odd floor debate over the bill with the bill's Republican co-author, uh, Congressman Katko, oftentimes dispersing speaking time to fellow Republicans who would then bash his own proposal. It ended on a powerful note, however, with Katko delivering remarks punctuated, as Riga says, by his smacking of the lectern saying, I ask you to set aside politics just this once, banging on the wood with every word, 
just this once, I beg you, and pass this bill, he said. These people every day are willing to lay down their lives for us, he said, emphasizing that last word and citing the U.S. Capitol Police, who were overwhelmed by the attack. They, he said, deserve better, and we're going to deliver this. He spelled out the litany of names of the officers who died as a result of the insurrection. He said, we are doing this not for us and not for politics. We are doing it for them. He finished as the chamber broke into applause. That, supporting the law enforcement officials that Republicans pretend to support here, just 35 of them in the uh, U.S. House were able to come up with any support for law enforcement. The bill ultimately passed in the House 252 by uh, to 175. As I said, 35 Republicans voted with all of the Democrats to support the commission, defying both Trump and House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy after Trump had issued a statement urging Republicans to vote against it, calling the legislation a, quote, Democrat trap. Jeez. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, he's trying to prevent defections now among his own ranks in the Senate, echoing McCarthy's opposition in a Senate floor speech on Wednesday morning. Both men claim the bill was partisan, even though membership of the proposed commission is evenly split between the parties, which is exactly what they want. And now they're saying it's a partisan commission. What? You mean Republicans being hypocritical and well, reneging on a deal? Exactly. No. That's the thing. It's just bad faith from the Republicans. That is what is going on here. And I'm hoping the uh, Democrats are understanding this and figuring out how to adjust their strategy right now to deal with a party that is working in bad faith. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called McCarthy's opposition to the commission cowardice. She released a February letter from the GOP leader in which he asked for an even split of Democrats and Republican commissioners with equal subpoena power and no predetermined findings or conclusions. That's exactly what they got. The bipartisan legislation accommodates all three of those requests, she said, adding Leader McCarthy won't take yes for an answer. Democrats grew angry as some Republicans suggested the commission was only intended to smear Trump. Several shared their own memories of the insurrection when rioters brutally beat police, broke in through windows and doors and sent lawmakers running. Four of the rioters died, including a woman who was shot and killed by police as she tried to break into the House chamber. All Americans, by the way, I should add before playing this clip. A Capitol Police officer collapsed and died after engaging with the protesters and two officers, two American U.S. Capitol Police officers took their own lives in the days immediately afterwards. Ohio Democrat Tim Ryan put the debate into memorable perspective with these impassioned comments. I want to thank the gentleman from New York and the other Republicans who are supporting this and thank them for their bipartisanship. To the other 90% of our friends on the other side of the aisle, holy cow, incoherence, no idea what you're talking about. Benghazi, you guys chased the former Secretary of State all over the country 
spent millions of dollars. We have people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol Police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship. What else has to happen in this country? Cops. This is a slap in the face to every rank-and-file cop in the United States. If we're going to take on China, if we're going to rebuild the country, if we're going to reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them. I yield back the balance Everybody of my time. Back. Ohio Congressman, Democratic Congressman uh, Tim Ryan on Wednesday. He's Cong right. Yeah, you think? Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, circulated a letter from a group of around 40 to 50 anonymous U.S. Capitol Police officers who had been speaking with the congressman. It was on U.S. Capitol Police stationery. It was signed by, quote, proud members of the United States Capitol Police. And it reads as follows to members of Congress from members of the U.S. Capitol Police. On the January 6th commission, we members of the U.S. Capitol Police write this letter to express our profound disappointment with the recent comments from both chambers' minority leaders expressing no need for a January 6th commission. The brave men and women of the USCP were subjected to hours and hours of physical trauma, which has led to months of mental anguish. If you look around the Capitol building, they write, you still have doors that are broken, windows still smashed, and in some cases missing. Officers are forced to go to work with the daily reminder of what happened that dreadful day. On January 6th, they write, where some officers served their last day in a U.S. Capitol police uniform and not by choice. We would hope that the members whom we took an oath to protect would, at the very minimum, support an investigation to get to the bottom of everyone responsible and hold them 100% accountable, no matter the title or position that they hold or held. It is inconceivable, they say, that some of the members we protect would downplay the events of January 6. Member safety was dependent upon the heroic actions of USCP. It is a privileged assumption for members to have the point of view that, quote, it wasn't that bad. That privilege exists because the brave men and women of the USCP protected you, the members. They note it is unconscionable to even think anyone could suggest we need to move forward and get over it. Unfortunately, this letter comes to you anonymously because as U.S. Capitol Police officers, we are expected to remain neutral and do our jobs with honor and integrity. It's unfortunate that our, quote, bosses, parenthetically Congress, are not held to the same standard that we, the USCP, are signed proud members of the United States Capitol Police. The letter was quickly repudiated, however, by Capitol Police leaders who said that the agency does not take any position on legislative matters. But Congressman Raskin said on Wednesday evening that the officers approached his office with this letter and that they and their families have been traumatized about what happened on the uh, 6th of January, with Raskin saying they can't believe there is dissension in Congress about the simple facts of the insurrection. But even as that legislation passed the House, top Republicans locked arms in an effort to doom it in the Senate. 
and to shield former President Trump and their party from fresh scrutiny for their roles in the events of that day. New York Times uh, notes the vote came just hours after Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, declared his opposition to the plan, uh, which he had said just a day earlier he was open to voting for. And he had, of course, previously been vocal both in denouncing Trump's role in instigating the assault and in decrying the effort by some Republicans on January 6th to block certification of the election results. But that was then, I guess, and this is now. McConnell's reversal reflected broader efforts by the party to put the assault on the Capitol behind them in political terms or recast the rioting as a peaceful protest. Prospects for Senate passage dimmed substantially after that, after McConnell joined McCarthy, saying on the Senate floor, quote, after careful consideration, I've made the decision to oppose the House Democrats slanted and unbalanced proposal for another commission to study the events of January 6th. Another commission? Was there ever a first commission? No. Nope. The only thing slanted here, of course, is the notion that Republicans were ever working in good faith in the first place. Something, as I said, which I hope Democrats begin to learn quickly. The party they are negotiating with, as Congressman Tim Ryan sort of alluded there, is not doing so in good faith on this measure or, frankly, anything else right now in Congress. Senator Chuck Schumer, the uh, majority leader in the uh, in the Senate, vowed to put the bill up for a vote anyway in the coming weeks to force Republicans to choose. He said an independent commission can be the antidote to the poisonous mistruths that continue to spread about January 6th. And that is what our founding fathers believed in. He said the American people will see for themselves whether our Republican friends stand on the side of truth or on the side of Donald Trump's big lie. But, of course, that's exactly what Republicans are hoping the American people will never see, which is why they're now trying to kill this commission. So we'll keep our eyes on that in the days ahead as this comes for a vote in the Senate. And as, uh, well, the members of the Senate, the Republicans in any event, get a chance to choose if they are with America or if they're with Donald Trump. In any event, from Israel... To Washington, D.C., we'll take a quick break and we'll head back here to our own home of Los Angeles, where a Democratic governor is under fire by Republicans who cannot seem to win at the ballot box here unless they can figure out how to get a low turnout recall election to do it. But with Governor Newsom's approval ratings now on the rise again for his handling of the pandemic, well, what do Republicans have left? Oh, yeah, they've got the state's homelessness crisis to try to pin on him. But even there, as the Brad Blog's Ernie Canning joins us momentarily to explain, they may have trouble pitting that on Newsom either. But that doesn't mean the crisis isn't real here in California and that there are not a lot of folks to blame for it. That is next on the broadcast as well as our latest Green News report with some pretty <laughs> cool stuff, actually. Yeah. Some pretty cool stuff. Some good things For a come. happy change. What happened to you, Des? <laughs> That's all coming up a bit later. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here in the city of angels. A UC Berkeley poll this week indicates tepid support for recalling California's progressive Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom in an all but certain election recall election later this year. Just 36 percent of California voters support the recall effort and 49 percent are currently opposed. 15 percent, however, are still undecided, according to the poll conducted by UC Berkeley's Institute for Government Studies. If all of those undecideds, of course, vote in favor of the recall, Governor Newsom would be out. Or if those who oppose his recall decide that he was perfectly safe in office and that they had no reason to come out and vote, well, that also might result in another stunning surprise for California voters. Or... If a more interesting alternative to Newsom uh, announced their candidacy, more interesting currently perhaps than the Republican Caitlyn Jenner, whose campaign so far has failed to excite the electorate, or Republican businessman John Cox, who is dumping a lot of the money, a lot of money into this race after being soundly defeated by Newsom by about 25 points back in 2018. Uh, Cox has now added an actual grizzly bear, for some reason, to his campaign commercials and his rallies. The GOPers, of course, are hoping to unseat Newsom, but have yet to find their Arnold Schwarzenegger this time around, at least for now. Another encouraging sign for Newsom is that undecided voters appear to be breaking in his direction. According to that new poll, the number of voters supporting the recall effort is unchanged from a late January Berkeley IGS survey. While in the meantime, he's picked up four points among those who said that they would vote no on the recall as compared to the poll taken earlier this year. The first time governor, first term governor enjoys solid support in the urban areas of San Francisco and Los Angeles. But the poll found robust support for the recall effort in the more right leaning suburban and rural areas like the Inland Empire, the Central Valley, the North Coast and the Sierra regions uh, that are traditionally more Republican. Overall, the poll found interest in the recall effort to be tepid at best, with less than half of voters surveyed. That's 46 percent indicating high interest levels. 
Newsom's job performance rating, in the meantime, has bounced back in recent months, according to the poll. In the most recent survey, 52% of registered voters said they approved of Newsom's job performance and just 43% disapproved. Three months ago, however, his approval-disapproval ratings were just about even. The Republicans behind the effort to remove the Democrat, who uh, they couldn't defeat during a normal election, uh, they have been trying to focus on his handling of the COVID pandemic and California's homelessness problem. Well, on the COVID front, California now has one of, if not the lowest infection rates, death rates and test positivity rates in the nation. So that may not help them. The Berkeley IGS uh, said in a statement, quote, Newsom's improved job ratings appear largely due to voters much more positive view of the governor's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic compared to three months ago. However, they note voters continue to be highly critical of Newsom in his handling of several other major issues facing the state, especially in the areas of homelessness and housing costs that in advance of the recall election currently expected to take place in October, though no hard date has yet been set. But on the homelessness front, there, too, the governor could benefit from a recent federal court ruling in a long running case filed uh, by the Los Angeles Alliance for Human Rights, hoping to force more action from state and local government to deal with the Golden State's very real homelessness crisis. In this case, focusing on, as Ernie Canning describes it this week at the Brad blog, quote, the nightmare of homelessness at the heart of a place that dares to call itself the City of Angels. And while federal judge David O. Carter's 110-page decision in this case does not focus on Newsom, it could actually buttress the governor's argument, his position when it comes to the state's homelessness crisis as well. None of that, however, is why Ernie Canning decided to write about the ruling this week at Bradblog.com, though he does join us now to discuss that ruling. Ernest A. Canning is, of course, Bradblog's long toiling legal analyst and contributor. He's a retired attorney, a Vietnam veteran, a senior advisor to was a senior advisor to veterans for Bernie during the Vermont senator's 2016 run for the White House and perhaps most notably for this discussion, a lifelong Los Angelino, uh, unless I'm mistaken, at least a Southern Californian. Mr. Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir, and thank you very much for your really eye-opening piece that you posted this week uh, at Bradblog. Well, it was actually Judge Carter's decision that was eye-opening, but thank you. <laughs> well, uh, we wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for you opening our eyes to it. So, uh, Ernie, what, what specifically is the is the L.A. Alliance for Human Rights, what are they suing for in this federal case? And then we can get into both how uh, any of this uh, affects Governor Newsom's political fortunes and, as, as you highlight most interestingly, what Judge Carter ended up focusing on in the bulk of his ruling. But just the meat and potatoes of the case, what is the L.A. Alliance uh, suing for in this, in this federal lawsuit? Well, they're basic, the, the suit has been brought against the city and the county of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and it's primarily directed at their horrible mismanagement of uh, the, the funds, significant funds, including uh, what 77% of L.A. voters uh, 
voted on Proposition HHH in uh, 2016, which was a $1.2 billion bond measure mm-hmm. to create what was supposed to be 10,000 housing units. And uh, the money, to the extent that it's been applied, has been squandered. And mm. the manner in which uh, the city and county have been handling it uh, have been, shall we say, um, less than adequate. In <laughs> fact, uh, the judge talks about corruption a lot of other things. Yep. Um, and well, and, and the interesting thing is that Governor Newsom, who his handling of homelessness by comparison is just spotless by comparison. I mean, he what happens is it basically shows that it really comes down to a, to a matter of you know priorities as to how whether somebody really wants to do with this, whereas he's, he's he lambasts the city and county officials. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of that uh, corruption that he highlights. But uh, essentially, so if, if I'm understanding this, uh, the uh, L.A. Alliance is, is looking for essentially federal oversight for the money that has been uh, allocated for this problem because they feel the uh, L.A. city and L.A. county are not <clears throat> are not doing an adequate job of of overseeing the way this is is uh, playing out. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Well, what they sought and obtained was a preliminary injunction mm-hmm. that uh, would require an audit of all relief funds. They're placing uh, one billion dollars from Mayor Garcetti's justice budget into an escrow account, mm-hmm. and Judge Carter appointed a special master who will basically oversee how these funds are being handled. Mm-hmm. And to give you one example of, well, actually it's several, but. They had uh, uh, those funds, they created out of those funds uh, a total of supposed to be 10,000 units Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that were going to be produced by this. Well, they just produced 489 units, which are essentially uh, 489 apartments within seven apartment complexes, and they're producing them at a, um, basically each apartment's costing, uh, the median cost is $531,000 per unit. And so this and, this was the bond measure. This is the one point two billion dollar bond measure. Ten thousand homes we were promised, uh, and again this was in twenty sixteen, so five years ago. And now we so far have four hundred and eighty nine units uh, out of that ten thousand. Just some of the corruption that uh, Judge Carter highlights and that you you point to as well. But you note that the judge cites. The fact that African-Americans account for only 8% of the general population in Los Angeles County, and yet they account for 42% of the now more than 66,000 unhoused residents. You detail how uh, Judge Carter focuses on the reasons for what Governor Newsom describes in his uh, State of the State address last year as the wrenching reality of families, children, and seniors living unfed on a concrete bed as being more than the more than the result of simply bad policies at the city, county or state level, but as much the result of a century of what you describe as a sordid history of systemic racism in Southern California and its disparate impact on people of color. Now, as someone who grew up in Southern California, Ernie Canning, and as a white guy, I should note, you you seem somewhat taken aback by some of Carter's findings in his ruling on this. Tell, tell me about what opened your eyes here. Well, I, I would say I'm not so taken aback now, but back then, I, I grew up in uh, 
in the San Fernando Valley in the 1950s and 60s. I attended public school there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I can recall looking back that uh, I'd see the things that were happening in the, in the Deep South at the time, and I was appalled by how they were treating African Americans and how vicious it was and mm-hmm. the segregation there. But I never stopped to think that, you know, it's really odd that almost everybody that is attending my schools and almost everybody in the neighborhoods I lived was white or, you know, there would be a few Hispanics, maybe a few Asians, but there were no African Americans, mm. you know. And, and the thing that, that Judge Carter reveals is that didn't occur by happenstance. Uh, uh, back in 1910, uh, mm-hmm. 36% of African Americans were living in racially divided neighborhoods uh, and they were homeowners. R- racially, uh, racially, hang on, racially diverse neighborhoods, actually, diverse not neighborhoods, racially divided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and they were homeowners, and then uh, in steps the, the KKK and enforcement of the racially restrictive covenants, redlining, mm-hmm. and eminent domain. I, I pulled it out, by the way, the decision. I could, just one example of what mm-hmm. happened here. In 1912, an African-American couple named Charles and Willa Bruce had purchased two oceanfront lots in what would become Manhattan Beach, and they converted it into a resort. They had a lodge, cafe, dance hall, and other African-Americans purchased nearby lots. Well, what happened was uh, the KKK set fire to homes, and then the county came in and used eminent domain to seize all of their properties and convert it into a um, whites-only park. A whites-only so, park. Yes. And that's, this is Southern California. We're not talking about Georgia or right. any of the Confederate states. We're talking about Southern California. Yep. Well, you know, the racially restrictive covenants were supposed to be banned after a 1948 uh, Supreme Court decision. But what happens is the whole thing becomes self-perpetuating because as you, you have, uh, uh, for example, uh, when they went to do the freeways, mm-hmm. they would use eminent domain and... Uh, wealthy white neighborhoods like Beverly Hills said, well, we don't want the freeways here, so they would build them in African-American neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. The eminent domain then, because they couldn't move to the wealthier neighborhoods, it made people had to more crowding in those neighborhoods, and that's what caused, uh, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. adverse, uh, both economically and, and physically, because you have the all the stuff associated with freeway construction, that sort of thing. Yeah, and those um, those were the neighborhoods that were plowed under for to to make room for the for the freeways. Uh, right. And then you add with eminent domain, then you add the redlining that went on for decades. Uh, in short, the the judge seems to be saying here the homelessness problem that we have today. Uh, which is particularly disproportionately among African-Americans, did not come from nowhere, but rather from decades of horrific treatment that we are still dealing with today. You also cite the court condemning L.A. City and County's deliberate decisions to perpetuate unspeakable squalor by attempting to physically contain it within a 50-square-block downtown Skid Row and by policing policies that criminalize homelessness. Tell me about the, uh, you know, so this was not just back in the 1910s, 1912s, 1940s. Tell me about the 1970s Blue Book plan that was implemented by the city of Los Angeles in the 1970s that the uh, Judge Carter highlighted here. Yeah, and the, the plan had specific things for containing it, and, but they did beyond that. They used the LAPD set up physical buffers to reduce movement 
uh, they'd have floodlights demarcating the, the, you know, basically the borders of Skid Row to discourage people from leaving. Mm. And then the other problem is the disparate law enforcement. Uh, what they would do is they would concentrate on basically making homelessness, uh, uh, arresting people for, for mining violations. And the judge made a very interesting observation. He said, when you when you do this and start arresting uh, disproportionately people for every minor offense, ticketing and arrest create, and I'll quote this, a revolving door of debt and insecurity where a history of arrests bar individuals from housing and sustainable jobs. Mm. So you can see how the whole system perpetuates yep. itself. Well, what they did was... But the, the court was looking, the reason he focused on the, the racial discrimination is that, you know, you're asking a federal court to step in and tell a city how to run uh, these programs to deal with homelessness. You have to have a federal offense that justifies them, uh, the court's mm-hmm. exercise of its jurisdiction. Uh, you find it, for example, in the Equal Protection Clause because you're finding systemic racism is the source of what's going on. It's not the only source, mm-hmm. but it is a major source of what's taking place. So that gives the court the jurisdiction to issue orders and take over where the, where the city has done so poorly. And and I should note this uh, ruling, as I understand, is under appeal by the uh, by the county and the city. Are they are, are they both uh, appealing the ruling at the, the ninth? At Circuit? first, the county, then the city. They've both appealed. There's a temporary stay. Uh, which is an administrative state, so that it can't mm-hmm. be enforced. The ruling can't be enforced prior to June 15. Uh, you know, it's uncertain what the Ninth Circuit's going to do with it. There, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, the one area in, you know, it, even if this is upheld, the problem is that systemic homelessness is really the uh, product not only of racial discrimination, mm-hmm. but really of the nature of our capitalist system, particularly since Reagan, where you've got such a, a gaping inequality. And, and what we're looking at, in fact, I was pleased because you put a couple photos in which highlight the distinction. You see these expensive high-rises, mm-hmm. and nearby you can actually see the squalor. Yep. And so, you know, you can take a starving person and put them in a room, and they're still going to starve to death. We've got to deal with with the problem of of gaping inequality, mm-hmm. and so what you really need to do if we're ever going to really do away with homelessness as a problem, uh, we've got to change the basic economic structure where we don't leave so many people out, and where we don't have you know one or two individuals, well, actually three individuals that own as much as half the population of the United States. Yeah, I know so, you you highlight that as well. I mean, and it is obscene. Those three people, I think, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos themselves owning as much as what is it? The, the, the bottom half, sixty million people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is obviously obscene. And you know, when it, when I put those uh, photos into your piece. You know, I think a lot of people see with, you know, these gleaming, expensive high rises next to these, uh, you know, homeless uh, tents on the ground. And they go, gosh, we need to do something about those homeless tents. Well, yeah, maybe the answer is up in those gleaming buildings. You know, maybe that's your problem. And we should rethink how that came about. There is a lot to dig into in in your piece, uh, Ernie Canning. I'll point folks to it at Bradblog.com. It's headlined, While Beneficial, Federal Court Intervention Won't Resolve 
solve Los Angeles homelessness crisis and you explain why and how it's going to take really a rethinking of of our entire economy. But the uh, and you talk about the corruption we mentioned, uh, the, the judge, at least, takes both the city of L.A. and L.A. County to task for failed efforts and, and corruption and so forth. Uh, you talked a little bit about this at the top, but how does Governor Newsom fare? Is, is, is he also under firing for his handling of, of homelessness in California, at least from this judge or? Uh, as I read it, he's kind of one of the few heroes in this story, at least as of now. Absolutely. In fact, what's interesting is when you compare the, uh, the 489 rooms over a span of five years from, from uh, Prop HHH, Newsom, when he saw what was happening, he put together what's called Project Home Key for eight, an $846 million project. And in that project, he... Uh, was able to basically subsidize or, within less than a year, purchase or subsidize 6,029 housing units statewide. <laughs> uh, so where, where one promised uh, 10,000 units for $1.2 billion, Newsom got it done. And the other thing he did uh, is he's also uh, had significant sums that he's sent to the cities or released to the cities in order to... Uh, temporarily house uh, the homeless during the uh, COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. that would, they would house them in hotel and motel rooms. And in fact, um, what happened was that's another problem area with the city of Los Angeles. Even the, the business leaders, along with other uh, civic leaders, wanted the city to secure 15,000 hotel rooms. Uh, well, in March, the city of Los Angeles he said, well, we've got budgetary constraints, and, and they're going to ramp down Project Room Key is what that project's called. And uh, a, a subsequent L.A. Times investigative report revealed that the supposedly cash-strapped city had failed to request FEMA reimbursements for the uh, Room Key expenditures, which that's what's available and what the governor's been put together with, with the federal, between the state and the federal government, that they, he gives this money to the cities. They can... They can yeah put people house people in the in the hotel and motel rooms that are un, unoccupied yeah. and uh, uh, then they can ask FEMA to reimburse them well, the city didn't get around to requesting the reimbursement so we don't have enough money to do this we can't follow the uh, the mandate from the state as it turns out we do have the money because FEMA the federal government is actually uh, uh, paying for some of this but we just didn't bother to get it. What a mess. Uh, he, yeah, the court described that as deliberate indifference. Yeah, well, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, and then, of course, the corruption. I'm going to let uh, folks read about some of the corruption that you detail in your story as well, uh, because it's really it's a problem of, as, as you sort of break it down, lack of priorities, corruption, policies to contain and perpetuate homelessness, going back decades, going back a century. Uh, with, uh, well, yeah, going back to 2017, you have an FBI probe and investigations and subsequent arrests and prosecutions of uh, a lot of uh, political fundraisers, consultants, and a city council, former city council member, Jose Weezer, I guess mm-hmm. it is, and who, whose district was Skid Row. Yeah, uh, but let's blame all of it on Gavin Newsom. Uh, check out this story. Uh, you will uh, learn a lot going back. You know, you don't think of uh, Jim Crow when you think of Southern California. But as Ernest A. Canning points out in his story, 
as Judge Carter, David O. Carter, does in this lawsuit, uh, think again. The story is, while beneficial federal court intervention won't resolve Los Angeles homelessness crisis, lengthy opinion exposes century of entrenched racism, corruption, and indifference, but overlooks extreme predatory capitalist inequality by Ernest A. Canning at bradblog.com. Uh, you can also find uh, Ernie on the Twitters at can4ing, for some reason that's C-A-N-N, the number four, I-N-G. He is, of course, our uh, long-toiling legal analyst and contributor at brandblog.com. Ernie, I really appreciate this story. It was really interesting. I learned a lot. Thanks for digging through that 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 long legal opinion to uh, make sense of it, uh, of it for us at, at the blog. Greatly appreciate it, sir. You're welcome, Brad. A, uh, an important report there, I think. I hope people uh, will read that. Yeah, a uh, history that I had no idea yep. about here in Southern California. Yep. And also wanted to point out that something that Ernie had mentioned about that family, that black family that had uh, bought the property in Manhattan Beach and then was Seaside, see- uh, yeah, kicked out. Yeah. Um, that is something that happened across the entire country. Redlining, which yep. was the federal government telling banks don't lend to people in these areas prevented the african-american community from building generational wealth and being able to a get a home loan at all b use that home loan to invest in other things um and and so it 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 is a long-term decades-long intergenerational multi-generational prevention of people from being able to gain wealth and it's horrible and i'll tell you out here in california southern california uh with property uh with with prices that they are for uh, skyrocketing yeah i mean we're talking and i I think he mentioned that that was uh, 1912 or something like that as i recall generations this would be generations of black families who would have benefited from owning that land property owners for the past hundred years and uh you know a lot of the rich white people out here are rich because they've had houses and land that has been you know passed down to them uh, decade after decade yeah uh but that was all ripped away from the black community or at least from many in the black community and you know well now you see where we are with it a really eye-opening story uh, all right quick break and uh, desi Doyle will open our eyes <laughs> with her latest green news report with yes some kind of good ish and exciting ish news that's straight ahead on the broadcast i'm brad friedman The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, Jesse Doyen. Well, let's find out how goodish and exciting-ish things are in your latest green news report. The next decade, we call it really the decade of massive clean energy expansion. International Energy Agency's landmark roadmap to reach net zero by 2050. Biden administration moves to innovate buildings. Plus, it's time. To bring the lightning. Ford unveils its all-electric F-150 lightning truck. All of those stories 
and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. If what Ford has done is build a Ford F-150 that is better than Ford F-150s that are powered by gas or diesel, this will change the game. This will change the climate. Literally. Hope you're right. No snark. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I only wish Ford had made a bigger deal out of the introduction of their (laughs) new all-electric F-150. But we're not starting there, are we? No, we are not. We are beginning with the International Energy Agency, a partner to the United Nations. This week, the IEA released a landmark comprehensive roadmap for humanity to reach net zero emissions by 2050, which scientists say is necessary to have a chance at avoiding catastrophic climate change. That's important and a big report, but boy, could they use some of those Ford sound effects to introduce it. (laughs) Yes, they could. The IEA report spells out a realistic, cost-effective, and socially just path to meet the Paris Climate Agreement targets of keeping global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The IEA says the pathway to net zero by 2050 is narrow, but still achievable if governments act now. It's a huge report, but in a nutshell, by 2035, we need to phase out sales of new gas-powered vehicles. By 2050, generate 90% of global electricity from renewable sources. That requires rapid deployment of clean energy technologies at four times our current rate. We need to double our rate of improvement in energy efficiency and green hydrogen technology. And the biggest, the IEA says some fossil fuels will still be needed until renewables ramp up, but there is no need to develop any new fossil fuel supply projects beyond what is already slated in 2021. That is good news, and it comes from the IEA, which is not exactly a lefty renewables organization, is it? (laughs) No, it is not. The fossil fuel industry has used the IEA's previous reports to justify new fossil fuel development. Now the IEA has just decimated that last excuse. Now, there has been some confusing reporting suggesting that we don't yet have half of the technology to reach net zero by 2050, that it hasn't been invented yet. But IEA Director Fatih Birol, in a statement, clarified, saying, quote, most of the reductions in CO2 emissions through 2030 come from technologies already on the market. However, in 2050, half of the emissions reductions will come from technologies that, while known, are still in development now. Or, as IEA climate modeler Laura Kotze put it. We have all the technologies that we need. The good news is that most of them are here around the market are cheap, are cheaper than the alternative. So we have all the tools we need, but new technologies are still developing and in the prototype stage, like carbon capture. Those will need massive innovation by 2030 to be commercially scalable in time for 2050. The IEA roadmap projects that if governments act swiftly, it will create 14 million jobs and lift global economic growth in the 2020s. The IEA is hugely influential, and the report is a signal to world governments, the global banking and finance industry, and the fossil fuel industry. And we will see if they hear it. As I said, this is not a lefty group. They have long supported the fossil fuel industry. So for them to say uh, no more new fossil fuel development, this is a very big deal. Yep, 
And in other news, the Biden administration announced it will establish the first ever energy efficiency and performance standards for federal buildings and will create an Energy Star rating system for homes. Mm. It will also invest in programs to speed up building innovation and adoption of next generation heat pumps and emissions saving technology. Cool. Finally, the other big news this week, Ford Motor Company on Wednesday unveiled its all-electric version of the Ford F-150 truck series, the best-selling vehicle in the United States. The F-150 Lightning, slated to come on the market next year, could potentially be a game-changer for the U.S. market. In a big presentation on Wednesday, Ford Chief Engineer Linda Zhang said the Lightning is actually better faster and does more than its gas-powered cousins, including this. Intelligent backup power makes the F-150 Lightning your own personal power plant, automatically powering your house for three days during an outage. This is a first for an EV truck. Well, it certainly is, and it might be a hell of a sales point if you live down in Texas. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I want to take a ride with you tonight, oh baby, in the pickup truck. <laughs> By the way, just to be clear, I mentioned that you know, it would be good to have one of those pickup trucks that could power your house if you lived in Texas because the power went out uh, in February because of a cold snap all, across, all over the state. And if they had had an electric F-150 Lightning pickup truck, they'd have been able to power their house for exactly. three days. I mean, and that basically works for everybody in the entire United States because all 50 states are now subject to even more intense and frequent extreme weather events that knock out your power. So there you go. So get yourself one of these big, powerful <laughs> don't, electric trucks. But I'm just trucks. saying, it's a thing that happens. It's a thing that happens, and but there's a thing. It's it's a thing that there's a solution for that the, the electric vehicles now offer a solution for one of the problems for many of the problems that are caused by climate change, but. Mm-hmm. Even more so there. All right, we have to get out. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doy, and to my guest today, Brad Bloggs, Ernie Canning, Ernest A. Canning. Great to have him here. Uh, And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That's a service made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves and tr- where we try to do what uh, not a whole lot of other folks are doing. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.